Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Hey, how's that recovery going, ladies and gentlemen? Um, well, we're we're being it's an election year, so we're being led to believe that it's a good recovery. But the uh, International Monetary Fund begs to differ, at least insofar as the zone of Europe that uses the euro currency is concerned. The IMF came out with a report this week predicting, yeah, I know, that uh, the eurozone may be headed for a third dip in what so far has been a double-dip recession. So that... uh, Austerity cure is working just fine. Uh, Of course, if Europe goes that way, the United Kingdom, which has been having bragging about its recovery, will soon follow because most of its exports are to, yeah, Europe. Meanwhile, as they say on the news, uh, we've got just a rip-roaring recovery, if you don't count the uh, fact that almost all of the income gains made since um, these in 2008 have been to the upper one, well, the point, not the 1%, the 0.1%. Don't forget the point. But um, we have do a great deal of business with China these days. Aren't you glad to know? And many observers of the economic scene in China are pointing towards downward indicators suggesting that China is slowing down its previously madcap growth as they uh, start to see, among other things, the environmental consequences of madcap growth, always good, and um, just things are slowing down. They've over-invested in... uh, Construction, a lot of buildings are, it's like Miami, 2009 now, in China, apparently. A lot of big, new, impressive buildings with nobody in them. It's good for the rats. So uh, that would suggest that maybe our lovely recovery, such as as it is, you know, the recovery that, uh, as in Britain, has been fueled by 0% interest rates for five years. Pays to be a saver, doesn't it? What your folks told you was absolutely wrong. Save your money and you get nothing for it. But uh, the banks get money at zero and get to lend it out at, you know, two, three percent. Hey, that's a good deal. So next, next life be a bank. Hello, welcome to the show. Watching telly, this whole damn life is a prison and you're in it alone. A prison and you're in it
From Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are not number one. A couple of uh, indicators this week that the United States no longer kind of leads the world. The Australian capital territory of Canberra is the best place in the world to live. A national capital in Australia, according to a report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Canberra led the regional ranking while Australia topped the overall country rankings, followed by Norway. We'll we'll be hearing more about Norway later in the broadcast. The OECD ranked 362 regions of its 34 member nations in its survey. It used nine measures of well-being, including income, education, jobs, safety, health, and environment. Five Australian cities, including Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, were also in the top ten. It's like Australia is a good place to live suddenly. Other top-scoring places, including the states of New Hampshire and Minnesota. New Hampshire and Minnesota. So if you want to live well, by fur, I guess. is On the other end of the scale, Mexican states constituted all ten of the bottom regional rankings on a country level. Mexico, Turkey, Hungary, Turkey. Hungary, Poland, Slovakia were ranked as the hardest places to live. Maybe that's why the Turks aren't selling, sending troops to Syria. It's, it's too hard. And China just overtook the U.S. to become the world's largest economy, according to the World Authority, supposedly on such matters, the International Monetary Fund. The method used by the IMF adjusts for purchasing power parity since prices aren't the same in each country. A typical person in China earns a lot less than a typical person in the United States. So converting a Chinese salary to dollars underestimates how much purchasing power that individual and therefore that country might have. The IMF measures both GDP and market exchange terms and in terms of purchasing power. On the purchasing power basis, China is overtaking the U.S. right now to become the world's biggest economy. By the end of 2014, China will make up 16.48% of the world's purchasing power-adjusted GDP, 17.632 trillion. The U.S. will make up just 16.28%, or 17.416 trillion. It's some time before the lines cross over in raw terms, not adjusted for purchasing power by that measure. China still sits more than 6.5 trillion lower than the U.S., and isn't likely to overtake us for quite some time. Tell that to your grandkids, won't you? We're not number one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? Almost 3 billion gallons of oil industry wastewater have been illegally dumped into central California aquifers. They supply drinking water and irrigation water for farming. This according to state documents obtained by the Center for Biological Diversity. This is a press release issued by that center. The wastewater entered the aquifers through at least nine injection disposal wells used by the oil industry to dispose of waste contaminated with fracking fluids and other pollutants. The documents also reveal that Central Valley Water Board testing found high levels of arsenic, thallium, and nitrates. Mm. They're... Contaminants sometimes found in oil industry wastewater, and those were found in water supply wells near 
these waste disposal operations. Mmm, fracking waste. And uh, more about sand mining discussed on this broadcast last week in re-fracking, because fracking needs sand, like Mars needs women. Sand mining operations hundreds of miles away from Pennsylvania in Minnesota and Wisconsin could affect water and air quality in western Pennsylvania, according to a recent report by the Civil Society Institute's Boston Action, Action Research. What makes the findings of the report significant to the western Pennsylvania region is the sand itself. Frack sand? Come on, band name or what? Frack sand. Used in oil and natural gas drilling is a high-purity quartz sand with very durable and very round grains. It cannot be crushed. Oh, yeah? Just tell Jesse Ventura that. Hydraulic fracturing is used in drilling to produce petroleum fluids from rock that lacks adequate pore space for the fluids to flow to a well. The process creates fractures in the rock, which do not deflate once the rock is fractured and the natural gas is extracted. The sand, which comes predominantly from Minnesota and Wisconsin, keeps the fractures in the rock from deflating, enabling the drillers to extract more natural gas. Frack sand. Frack sand is mine. No, it's a it's a uh, police song is mined in the wind west and cleaned and treated before it's transported to drilling sites. The problem, though, is silica dust, which comes from the mined sand, says John Stoltz, a Duquesne University biology professor. There is silica in the sand. It's the silica that holds the sand together. Silica. Guess guess what it can cause? Silicosis, a lung disease brought on by breathing in crystalline silica dust. The silica can embed itself deep into a person's lung tissue and cannot be expelled by coughing. Silicosis is the most common lung disease, and there is no known cure. Please give. Even the use of a respirator does not always ensure adequate protection, says Stoltz. The report said intense exposure to crystalline silica can cause disease within a year, but it can take 10 to 15 years before symptoms develop. Besides silicosis, silico exposure has also been linked to emphysema and bronchitis, chronic kidney disease, as well as autoimmune diseases such as lupus, hyperthyroidism, and rheumatoid arthritis, according to the report. Because Pennsylvania is now a top five natural gas producing state, the Civil Society Institute's report estimates that more sand is not only going to be needed in the state, but in the nation as a whole. As this report makes clear, it is essential, says the report, that local and state governments assess and take action based on the impacts of a full cycle of shale oil and gas drilling, including frack sand mining. Yeah, right. The fracking companies need 95 billion tons of frack sand a year. This year, that's an increase of 30% from last year. And that demand probably will lead to additional sand mining in the U.S., including in Pennsylvania. Frack sand! Deadline Albany, a federal water study commissioned by the Cuomo administration as it weighed a key decision on fracking, was edited and delayed by state officials before it was published. This according to Capital in New York. The study, originally commissioned by the state way back in 2011, when the administration was reportedly considering approving fracking, on a limited basis, was going to result in a number of politically inconvenient... Tom? Politically inconvenient? Yeah. Stand by for Mal- the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, by the way, Tom. You mean Malala? That's, that's who I mean. Malala! 
Uh, it was going to result in a number of politically inconvenient con- conclusions for Governor Andrew Cuomo, according to early drafts of the report by the U.S. Geological Survey obtained by Capitol New York through a Freedom, freedom of Information request. A comparison of the original draft of the study, unnaturally occurring methane in water wells across the gas-rich southern tier, with the final version of the report, which came out after extensive communications between the federal agency and Cuomo administration officials reveal that some of the author's original descriptions of environmental and health risks associated with fracking were played down or removed. The final version of the report also excised a reference to risks associated with gas pipelines and underground storage, a reference which could have complicated the Cuomo administration's potential support for a number of other controversial energy projects, including a proposed gas storage facility in the Finger Lakes region that local winemakers say could destroy their industry. Mmm, New York wine. Email communications over a period of several months between Cuomo administration officials and federal researchers were obtained by Capital New York in heavily redacted form. What are they hiding? The messages reveal an active role by Cuomo's Department of Environmental Conservation in shaping the text and determining the timing of the report's release. The emails also show that the department then tracked people who read the study online, grouping them by institutions with which they're affiliated. At various points, a U.S. Geological Survey spokeswoman thanks a state official for her edits and reminds the study's author that they're employed by a science organization which is not in the business of advocating particular positions. A later communication suggests delays from the administration side when the USG, uh, USGS spokeswoman refers to a need to publish the report in a timely fashion. While there's no evidence to suggest that any numerical findings in the fracking study were changed after the unusually extensive feedback from State of New York officials in the Cuomo administration, the changes to the explanation of those findings in the report are plain to see. What the frack? Hey! Maybe he likes it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of Nice Corp. Nice people. Nice people doing nice things. Pop my peas when I think of them. The Courier Mail newspaper in Brisbane, Australia, has provoked outrage by calling a murdered transgender woman a she-male and a ladyboy. My young Prasetyo from Indonesia was allegedly murdered and dismembered by her boyfriend who killed himself after reportedly being caught (sighs) cooking her remains. The gruesome case was sensationally reported in the paper owned by Rupert Murdoch's Nice Corp. In a front page headline, its uh, its front page headline read, quote, Monster Chef and the She-Male. The inside story was headlined, quote, Lady Boy and the Butcher, unquote. Outrage spread on social media. A petition was launched demanding an apology from the newspaper. It had been signed by more than 16,000 people within a couple of days. Quoting the Courier-Mail's own code of conduct that uh, stipulates no details of sexual preferences must be included unless they are relevant, the petition argues the reporting was unnecessary and dehumanizing. The paper has changed the headline online to, quote, killed and cooked trans woman was high-class sex worker, unquote. Neither the Courier-Mail nor News Corp. have responded to criticism. Australia's press council has confirmed it is investigating the Queensland tabloid owned by Nice Corp. 
because you know they're classy when you when they want to be seen that way, and then when they want to make some money, it's a much nicer business model. News of Nice Corp, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, news of the godly. A Christian evangelical TV network based in Jerusalem and Plymouth, England, nice work, is in turmoil after the wife of the founder revealed he'd run off with another woman under the influence of the devil. Who else? God TV had set a goal of reaching one billion souls, but the troubles of the couple that founded the channel, Rory and Wendy Alec, has sent shockwaves through the ranks of their followers. This from the Telegraph newspaper in London. Thousands are believed to have tuned in to a special broadcast from Jerusalem in which Wendy revealed that her husband was living on a farm in South Africa with a jazz musician. Mrs. Alec said she'd anticipated her troubles from the beginnings of her marriage to her childhood sweetheart. She said she was astounded how easily the devil had invaded and destroyed her marriage. God knew before the beginning of time that we would face this time, she said. Wow. Fair warning. Quote, the princes of hell designed a perfect strategy through that seductive Jezebel spirit. It was a real strategic attack against his mind. She continued, the music studio is one of the most seductive environments you could have. This regarding the place where Rory would often meet with his new woman, helping her produce a jazz album. That quote, this woman said she'd had an audible voice from God that Rory was the man of her life. The devil got in very, very easily. What, the devil's supposed to work hard? Addressing allegations that have flooded the Internet, Mrs. Alec denied that she herself had been unfaithful and that the couple had lived a lavish lifestyle. We do not own two private jets, she said. We do not have a house in London. God TV hosts events in Jerusalem that are attended by leading Israeli officials and employs more than 100 people at a headquarters and studios in Plymouth, England. Last month, Rory abruptly left the network, admitting in a letter to staff that he'd suffered a moral failure. Quote, after 20 years of service, I've had a moral failure this year. For this reason, I'm stepping down. I know your eyes are on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith, and not on me, an imperfect man. It is with a heavy heart that I confirm my season with God TV is over for now. Said a um, the vicar, vicar of St. George's Church in Baghdad, Canon Andrew White, Baghdad. He said he was standing by Mrs. Alec, quote, one thing we're sure is that God is not finished with God TV. That's why the devil doesn't like it. He will stop it and try to destroy it. I'd mess with the transmitter if I were the devil, but that's just me. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now let us try saga of the, the unending saga of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey is pressing the Army to publicly release an agreement on how it and three other federal agencies will clean up a waste dump with mysterious nuclear materials in Parks, Pennsylvania. I like that phrase, mysterious nuclear materials. It fills me with a certain frisson. The Army Corps of Engineers shut down the cleanup three years ago, about a month into a 10-year project that could cost up to half a billion dollars. A Corps contractor dug up nuclear materials that it was not prepared to deal with, according to an investigation by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The site received two types of uranium, U-235 and U-233, and other radioactive materials. The initial cleanup process was developed to handle 
smaller amounts of nuclear contamination. The federal investigation found there isn't enough documentation to know the level of nuclear contamination at the site. Other federal agencies were called in to help, according to the National Nuclear Security Administration, which deals with nuclear weapons materials. According to the federal investigation, the original agreement didn't account for finding more complex nuclear materials, which resulted in disagreements among the agencies on responsibilities. Four agencies have now reached an agreement on cleanup responsibilities, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the Nuclear Security Administration. But they have not released the details to the public, not the least of which are the people who live in the rural village that sits within feet of the waste dump. Senator Kerry believes the agreement should be made public. He and residents were instrumental in bringing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Inspector General's office to investigate problems with the cleanup. The new agreement outlining responsibilities is complete and going through a security review, according to a spokesman for the Army Corps of Engineers in Pittsburgh. And a spokesman, a spokeswoman for Joellen Darcy, Assistant Secretary of the Army, Civil Works, she rose up through the ranks of the Army Corps of Engineers, her spokeswoman said there is, quote, no timeline on the process. So hang loose, people in the community, where those mysterious mysterious nuclear materials have been dug up enjoy the glow and now news from outside the bubble private firms snoop far more on the public than government spy agencies who says that the head of Britain's equivalent of the NSA the GCHQ Sir Ian Lobbin He says it's the commercial companies who know everything about people and share the data with each other. There's an ongoing row over the level of snooping powers the police and intelligence agencies should have in Britain as well as less so here in the United States because we trust them. But in his first print interview, Sir Ian told the Daily Telegraph newspaper that the public should be more concerned with what private companies were doing with their personal information. Quote, look... Who has the info on you? It's the commercial companies, not us who know everything. A massive sharing of data. The other day I bought a watch for my wife. Soon there were lots of pop-up watches advertising themselves on my computer, and she complained. It's that bloody internet, I tell her. Unquote. Iraqi officials have issued a desperate plea for America to bring U.S. ground troops back to Iraq. As the heavily armed IS militants came within striking distance of Baghdad, this according to the Telegraph, amid reports that ISIL forces have advanced as far as Abu Ghraib. You remember that? It's near Baghdad. It's kind of famous. A senior governor claimed that 10,000 fighters from the movement were now poised to assault the capital. The province's two main cities, Fallujah, Fallujah! And Ramadi were once known as the graveyard of the Americans, and the idea of returning there will not be welcomed by the Pentagon. Iraqi government officials claim that while international attentions have been focused in recent weeks on the Syrian border town of Kobane, where Kurdish fighters are still battling to keep advancing IS gunmen at bay, Anbar province has been on the verge of collapse. I think it's fragile there now, says one senior defense official. They're being resupplied and they're holding their own, but it's rough and challenging. 
unquote. The surge of jihadi activity has led to speculation that the group's operation in Koban was part of an elaborate decoy mission orchestrated by the IS Caliph. Observers point out that while the capture of Cobain would not greatly increase ISIL's military clout, the capture of Ramadi or other cities in Anbar would be catastrophic both for the Iraqi government and Western hopes of attempting to contain the group. Most of the Euphrates Valley is now under IS control. Were Ramadi to fall, jihadi commanders would control a vital supply chain running from Baghdad directly back to their Syrian headquarters, and they would also control the Haditha Dam, the second largest in Iraq. Said one U.S. official, mastering his art of understatement, quote, it's not a good situation. Anbar was the cradle of the so-called Sunni awakening movement, an attempt by the U.S. to pry Sunni tribal chiefs away from the influence of Islamist insurgents. Uh, At that time, it was al-Qaeda in Iraq. Many had sided with Sunni jihadists due to fears of being sidelined under a government of Shia Muslims, but were won over, according to the Telegraph, by power deals or payment. You don't read that in the American press. Power deals. No, no, no. It was just the sir. It was the power of David Petraeus's thing. Their disillusionment, says the Telegraph, over recent years is one of the reasons why IS, a Sunni group, has found such favor across vast swaths of Iraq. In fact, the Sunni tribes were offered, I think I mentioned this last week, were offered um, posts in the Iraqi army if they fought against al-Qaeda in Iraq. They fought against al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Shia-led government of our friend, President Maliki refused to give them jobs in the army because they were Sunnis. And also, outside the bubble, Britain is uh, stepping up to the task of dealing with Ebola, the Ebola threat, according to The Guardian. Britain has carried out a national exercise to test the preparedness of the emergency services and the government for a possible Ebola outbreak. Actors have been deployed to simulate symptoms of the deadly virus, while medical professionals from hospitals, the ambulance service, and Public Health England played through scenarios. I'm just imagining the auditions. You all right? You all right? Go ahead, please. I, I must say it is, it is a type of fever which I've never felt before and which I... Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Next. No, I'm fine. Thank you. No, no, I'm really, I'm fine. No, no, it's no problem. I'm fine. Really, I'm perfectly fine. Don't worry about me. Um, Thank you. Next. Um, I must say, I don't, uh, don't really feel up to this. That's uh, a, a bit dizzy, if you, uh, if you know what I mean. And, uh, oh, there it comes again. Oh. Right, thank you. Long Daddy Green is an old, old friend. He hangs around the rainbow's end. A dealer in dreams, whispering of fortune and fame. Fanning the flame Hear him calling your name 
seen as a fly by night You turn around, he's out of sight Seems he's your fair weather friend And your foul weather foe The wind starts to blow Daddy Green starts to go Lies he tells aren't new to you You're not naive You know he won't be true to you Still you believe You believe Long Daddy Green Chops you down to size With slow hellos and fast goodbyes comes around when you feel about ten feet tall to make you feel small just like nothing at all you try to tug his sleeve one day your hopes are high he'll turn around and walk away but Still you try Still you try Long Daddy Green Likes to disappear Pretend that he is nowhere near Then he'll come tap at your window Scratch at your screen He sure can be mean Long Daddy Green You sure know how to treat your friends mean Long Daddy Green This is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr. Dateline Tokyo, a new round of bidding, a new round of bidding for construction of the main stadium for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics is going to delay the start of the problematic project. Some of the bids were reviewed by someone in the decision committee before all the bids were in, a violation of the rules, according to a, an official of the Japan Sport Council. Another round of bidding is due this month, but construction will be fast-tracked. The stadium will meet... It's March 2019 deadline. Quote, we need to revamp the whole system of planning for the Olympic Stadium, said the official Takayuki Ito, acknowledging there are too many problems. He declined to say who broke the rules, but he suggested it was an error. Plans for the stadium have been plagued by problems, including complaints from some prominent architects who say the design is too big and expensive. The 80,000-seat futuristic design to replace the national stadium built for the 1960 Tokyo Olympics was originally projected to cost $1.3 billion. 
the estimate quickly ballooned to more than double that. It's now expected to be scaled down. There have been other problems in the bidding as well. In the first round in March, all the bids surpassed the estimated cost and were rejected in May. In June, it was found some bids were lower than the level set as the standard. A month later, complaints of bid rigging surfaced, although an informal investigation later on found no evidence. Demolition of the old stadium will start in the middle of December, delayed by more than two months. But the council has promised to introduce electronic bids and to better educate council members to avoid future problems. That's Tokyo. What about the... 2022 Winter Games. Well, Norway's ruling Conservative Party didn't reject a government financial guarantee for the Oslo 2022 Winter Olympics bid lightly, says the Associated Press, but fears about spiraling costs and dissatisfaction at the perceived high-handedness of the International Olympic Committee sparked anger in this fiercely egalitarian nation. Norway, making it impossible for lawmakers to back the bid. Their vote on Wednesday killed Norway's bid and narrowed the list of potential 2022 Winter Olympic hosts to Beijing and Almaty in Kazakhstan. On the morning of the vote, the country's largest national daily newspaper printed demands the IOC would make to Oslo as host. You heard some of them last week on this broadcast. Norway is a rich country, but we don't want to spend money on wrong things like satisfying the crazy demands from IOC apparatchiks, said the chief commentator of the national daily newspaper, the VG. These insane demands that they should be treated like the king of Saudi Arabia just won't fly with the Norwegian public, unquote. IOC spokesman Mark Adams blamed the Norwegian media for rip misrepresenting the situation. IOC President Thomas Bach also accused the reporting of being overblown and claimed the decision not to back the bid was a purely political decision by a party and minority government. The IOC has a 7,000-page manual for running the games. It says the opening ceremony is usually preceded by an imperatif and followed by a reception. I fear for the future of the Winter Olympics, I really do, says Svein Harberg, a Norwegian lawmaker who led the committee that was leading the debate on scrapping the bid. He said lawmakers battled with what might happen to the Games in the event of a no vote. The Bach of the IOC maintains the Winter Games has not suffered because of Norway's decision and that their reputation is intact, citing the recent signing of new long-term agreements with sponsors and television companies. The image is very positive, says Bach. Nobody would enter into such kind of agreements if there would be a doubt on the image, unquote. The debate playing out in Norway has made words like sponsors and TV rights lightning rods for dissatisfaction with the Olympic process and the IOC in particular. The perceived profligacy of the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic Games is viewed with disgust in Norway. Opposition to the bid in the IOC also mounted after it reprimanded four Norwegian female cross-country skiers in Sochi for wearing black armbands in memory of an athlete's brother who died on the eve of the Games. But worry not, Norwegian Olympic officials will meet with the IOC leaders in Switzerland later this month to analyze the demise of Oslo's bid and explore ways of improving the bidding process. The Secretary General of the Norwegian Olympic Committee told the Associated Press the decision to blow off the Winter Olympics was a missed opportunity for Norway. 
We will sit together and go through the experience we had in Norway, he said. We have to make everything more transparent and much easier to understand. It's important to focus on how to reduce the cost of the management of the games, how to reduce the cost of bidding for the games, and how to better communicate this. Who wants the Winter Olympics? Would you like them? I think I think a meeting can be arranged. The Olympics, ladies and gentlemen, it's a movement. And we all need one. Every day! And now to what's been going on at the White House this week. Uh, Leon Panetta, former CIA head, former defense secretary, joined the parade of former Obama administration officials who couldn't wait until the administration was over before coming out with their book of memoirs. He was preceded by Robert Gates, former defense secretary for both Bush and Obama, and of course, Hillary Clinton. And a couple of the people who uh, wrote memoirs mid-administration as well. This is sort of different from uh, the tradition where cabinet members and other officials in an administration wait until it's over before coming out with their books, critical or not. Turns out Gates and Panetta, among others, have been seriously critical of Obama's President Obama's decision-making process and his decisions. Panetta was uh, well-known as a Democratic Party heavyweight and uh, a a so-called serious person uh, and a centrist who uh, disagreed with several of President Obama's key decisions and his decision-making process. Meanwhile, as you know, almost everyone with a, uh, a, a, a shred of a credential has now come out publicly and said, air strikes alone will not win the battle against the Islamic State, including the White House spokesman this week. You're wondering who's left both uh, to believe in airstrikes and to desist from coming out with their memoirs soon. Father Knows Best. Uh, excuse me, Mrs. First Lady. Yes, Manuel? Uh, Is it okay for me to uh, vacuum in the conference room? Well, let me ask you something. See, have you been following my healthy eating guidelines? Oh, sure. I'm eating so much kale, my sweat is dark green. Well, then I guess it's okay to... Mm, Maybe I'd better check. And uh, I'll be frank with you, Mr. President. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every one of our uniformed people says this mission cannot be accomplished without boots on the ground. Oh, hey, listen, Chuck, I have no problem with boots going over there. Just as long as there aren't any American soldiers wearing them. What? Are you suggesting we just uh, airdrop thousands of boots? (laughs) I'm not, although I've got to say that's a pretty good piece of thinking outside the box. Unless, Mr. President, it's a box full of boots. Uh, Well, Secretary Kerry, Uh was the Turkish president any more amenable to the idea of sending Turkish troops after 
last night's visit with him? Well, sir, I wouldn't want to be in the position of suggesting that there's a particular lack of strategic brain power on the part of the president of Turkey, but I, I think I now have a deeper understanding of how that bird got its name. Well, Secretary Hagel, I'm seeing a certain disconnect between our policy and the possibilities for its success. Secretary Hagel? Uh, uh, sorry, sir. I was just making a couple of quick notes for the uh, file. For the file? Mm-hmm. Oh, can I see? <laughs> well, it's just military gobbledy. Hmm. Sunless October morning. Carry face on teleconference screen. Looking tired. Well, seems harmless enough. <laughs> Doesn't sound very military, though. Well, uh, we're just trying to uh, humanize communications over at the Pentagon a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds almost like notes for a descriptive passage of some sort. (laughs) Well, you know, sir, memos can be so dry. Mm. A little vivid imagery really helps lengthen the attention span. At least that's what my editor tells me. Your editor? Did I say editor? (laughs) I meant my communications attaché. Uh, but, but yes, sir, to your question, I do think we're quickly coming to the point of diminishing returns on airstrikes alone. Mm. Uh, these damn terrorists have already learned to stop marching in formation down the main highways. <laughs> they are fiendish. John, you want to weigh in on this? As the president's voice filtered through the video screen... John? I had a nagging sense that, uh, that, uh, that I was thinking aloud... Uh, Sorry, sir, but as to what's just been said, let me uh, point out that I'm not all that tired. I just haven't moisturized yet this morning. Well, I don't think we have an answer on our policy yet, but uh, I'm getting the distinct impression that uh, we have no shortage of notes. (laughs) Hmm. Maybe later, Manuel. Okay, I go have some kale. So, you're uh, going out to L.A. again for what? Mm -hmm. More fundraising. Daddy, Mm -hmm. can't the Democratic candidates raise their own money? Oh, of course they can, Princess. I wasn't raising money for them. We got a presidential library to build, and I was raising money for the Princess Wing. Oh, Daddy, Kidden and I won't be part of your library. Sure you will. Can't stop humanizing myself just because my term is up. Hey, hey, Kitten. You don't seem all that excited about it. Kitten? Oh, sorry, Daddy. I was just texting somebody about something. <laughs> Why don't you let me see your phone, sweetheart? Oh, I'd rather not, Daddy. Hey, I'd rather not see a Republican Senate, but I'm probably gonna. Well. Besides, the most transparent administration in history has to have the most transparent first daughters. <sighs> okay, here. Hmm. It was dusk. Daddy was explaining the fundraising process for his presidential li- I guess I was going to be a library. I guess. Kitten, honey, hmm? have you gotten a book deal, too? Well, not a deal. Just a first look kind of thing. Kitten, honey, let me, uh, let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of folks are going to be writing books about all this, including your mom and dad. But there's a time for that. You've still got some growing up to do. Well, writing a book won't help you do that. That's your main job right now, isn't it? I guess. 
that and learning Mom's system for rating boyfriends. Oh, Barack, don't look at me. You scored pretty damn high. And now, news of our friend the Adam. the Adam. Welcome to the West Coast. Thank you so much. You you enjoying the uh, kind of summertime thing? I was out on my board yesterday. You're bored? Mm-hmm. Adams have boards. Very little boards. But it's okay because the surf was so tiny that... I get it. Inspectors in northern Germany have found that a third of barrels containing radioactive waste at a de- decommissioned nuclear plant are damaged. Vattenfall the energy company which manages the Brunsbüttel site in Schleswig-Holstein. You're doing good. Thank you. Reported that 102 of the 335 barrels stored in the site's six underground chambers were corroded, leaking, or had loose lids. Tom? Loose lids? You like Malala? Not like Malala. Some of the containers are so deformed they can no longer be moved as they no longer fit the robotic gripping arms at the site, according to the inspectors. The chambers are secure, and there's no danger for the personnel or the local population, said Vattenfall. That you can take to the Bundesbank. That's right. The Brunsbüttel site harbors 631 barrels of nuclear waste, which have been used for storing waste since 1979. The nuclear power plant was decommissioned three years ago. So far, Vattenfall has only inspected four of the six chambers using remote cameras. What, they get the uh, prints made at remote drugstores? I was hoping you wouldn't say that. The chambers themselves are built from concrete and have walls over a, a meter thick to protect people from radiation escaping into the surrounding environment. The chambers were supposed to be a temporary storage facility, said Vattenfall. They weren't designed for long-term containment. It was originally planned to store the barrels until they were moved to a mine shaft in Lower Saxony. This permanent storage facility was to be completed by the mid to late 90s, but is subject to successive delays. Completion dates in 2014 have been missed. A target of 2019 is now also unlikely. The latest estimate for completion is the start of the next decade. Never too late to store waste. Storage-wise. Store it safely. Hmm? Technical issues at the Hanford, Washington vitrification plant could have been resolved earlier if there had been more attention to feedback from employees and others, says Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. He made the comments at a hearing of the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board, one of my favorite boards, aside from the one I surfed on. Worker reluctance to raise issues or management reluctance to listen to concerns might have contributed to those technical issues, said the safety board members. Workers and managers need to feel they can discuss issues, and the differences of opinion on technical matters will be resolved in a professional way, said Moniz. It's a safety culture. Yeah. What, they don't sing Carmen enough? Environmental inspectors have been called in after an increase in tritium, our old friend tritium gas discharges from the former Chapel Cross nuclear plant in Britain. The discharges are in breach of um, policy, but are said to be well within the overall site safety limit. According to the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, 
the gaseous tritium is from an authorized outlet, but is greater than it should be. Chapel Cross, the facility, ceased power generation in 2004. But the tritium is forever. Apparently so. Clean, cheap, safe. No shortage of tritium, our friend the atom. And now, the apologies of the week. Dateline Glens Falls, New York. A New York minor league hockey team has apologized for a video skit <laughs> introducing its new mascot as a firefighter whooping flame from a devastating 19th century fire. The Adirondack Flames introduced Scorch. The mascot's backstory is that he's the lone surviving Embury from an 1864 fire that destroyed much of Glen Falls. In the video, Scorch emerges from behind a tree to overpower a firefighter, knocking him to the ground as POW appears on the screen. Two hours after introducing Scorch, the team issued an apology, saying the skit was done in poor taste. The league, the American Hockey League earlier this year approved the team's move from Abbotsford, British Columbia to Glen Falls, New York across the continent to find Scorch. Deadline Meriden, Michigan, after significant backlash from comments he made at a public meeting last month, City Councilor Lenny Rich issued an apology, though when city leader questioned whether it's too little too late. At a late September City Council meeting, Rich warned fellow councilors that Meriden could turn into Detroit if city government didn't adopt policy changes to prevent driving wealthier residents out. Where are you going to get the funds to hand up, to prop up all the people who are left? You're going to look exactly like Detroit. Take a look. Read the poverty. 90% black, 35% didn't graduate from high school. It's a bleak picture, Rich said at the meeting. Since then, city leaders, including city council Democrats and the NAACP chapter, have publicly criticized the remarks, resulting in Rich, a Republican, saying via email, quote, I offer my sincere apology to anyone who was offended by my remarks. My only intent was to address severe concentrations of poverty and the negative consequences associated with depressed cities. I know my comment brought in race, and that was not my intent. Unquote. Environmental Protection Agency's head Gina McCarthy apologized on behalf of her generation this week for not acting to stop climate change. I want to apologize for my generation. We didn't get it quick enough, she said in an event in Miami. And so when we started looking at climate data decades ago, we knew that climate change was a problem, and all we could do was project the impacts. Thursday was King Tide Day for Miami Beach when the tide of Biscayne Bay reaches its highest level of the year. The tide frequently floods Miami Beach's streets, though temporary pumps were moving the water back out to the bay Thursday. Federal officials say climate change has caused an increase in flooding, and it will only get worse. By pump stock, San Antonio Spurs guard Danny Green, long Danny Green, apologized on Twitter this week for a selfie taken at the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin that he posted on social media with LOL in the caption. He's since deleted the picture with the memorial in the background, which was captioned, you know I had to do it one time, LOL, hashtag Holocaust. His apology came in four tweets. Yes, mistakes do happen. I want to sincerely apologize for the insensitivity of my post. I have great respect and understanding for this country's history and wanted to continue chronicling my experience in Berlin, but showed poor judgment. Sorry once again. Unquote. Long Danny Green. 
Dateline Burlington to Vermont. Local station, television station WCAX is apologizing after broadcasting a photo of murder victim Melissa Jenkins remains. During a newscast, the photo of Jenkins' nude body face down underwater and weighted by cinder blocks appeared for several seconds during the 6 o'clock news. Dinner time, won't you? The photograph introduced in court as evidence was shown as part of a story about the second trial day for the man accused of abducting and killing her. News director Anson Tebbett said the station never intended to show the image. He blamed a breakdown in our editing system that's a little complicated to explain. We've spent the last 24 hours apologizing for our terrible mistake, he said. We apologize to the family, her friends, the community, and everyone that surrounded this case. It was a terrible mistake, and we're deeply, deeply sorry, he said. He advised people who want to see the image to read a Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid. No, he didn't. I just said that. Calling the actions of one of his priests inexcusable, Trenton, New Jersey Bishop David M. O'Connell apologized this week to a South Jersey man who says he was sexually assaulted hundreds of times in the 1980s and 90s by the diocese's former youth leader. O'Connell offered his prayers for the alleged victim and for all those affected by the horrible scourge of sexual abuse of minors. The victim reached a $610,000 settlement with the diocese two months ago. The victim said in a story in the paper that an apology was one of his key demands during the negotiations. And the New York Times has apologized after publishing a cartoon on India's Mars mission following readers' complaints that it mocked India. The cartoon showed a farmer with a cow knocking at the door of a room marked Elite Space Club where two men are reading a newspaper on India's feet. After a large number of readers complained about the cartoon, Andrew Rosenthal, editorial page editor, wrote, The intent of the cartoonist, Henning Kim Song, was to highlight how space exploration is no longer the exclusive domain of rich Western countries. Heng, who is based in Singapore, uses images and text. He was no way trying to impugn India, its government, or its citizens. The total cost of the Indian successful Mars mission was $74 million, one of the most inexpensive interplanetary space missions ever, and India achieved it on its first attempt. Let's make fun of that. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And that's going to put the uh, cap on this edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast from WWNO.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And would it be just like somebody sending in ground troops if you'd agree to join with me then? Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, and thanks to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program and a playlist of the music heard here on. And Cars I Talk t-shirts, all available at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network.
So long from Santa Monica.